All right. Do you mind turning, if you would, to Isaiah 54, verses 1 through 3? These verses will not be on the screen, I don't believe. Uh, I don't recall that they are. It's been the foundational point of this series. This is the fourth week of the series, Making Room for More. The first three, as you know, dealt with more personal things, dealing with the uh, heart when we talked about, or faith, actually, when we talked about prayer and fasting. And, um, and then we talked about, last week, we talked about, about holiness. Uh, and we also wanted to in, uh, impart some personal stuff into your life and allowing you uh, to grow before we started dealing with more of on a corporate level, which we're going to do today. There's some stuff in here that uh, is going to speak to you personally, I pray, but primarily it, it really is a message to the church. I pray it's a message that the church hears and understand where we're headed. Let me, let me read Isaiah 54, one through three. It says, single barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your offspring will possess the nations and will people, in other words, populate the desolate cities. Now, I'm, the, the title of this message is, is Stretch the Stakes. It's a little bit awkward for me to talk about because I'm not really a camper. I'll, I'll tell you about my last time that I actually went camping. Um, some of my favorite camping trips, I don't know, one was in Glacier National Park in a cabin. Uh, so, so there are some camping that I've done, but not, not in a tent. Now, the issue here with the nation of Israel that the Lord is writing to, or sorry, Isaiah's writing to as the Lord speaks, is that they understand the language. At this current time, they are not people who necessarily live in tents. Some might, but we're, we're actually 800 years away from when Abraham began tent dwelling and we're also past the move of the Exodus where they were in tents. Uh, they had come into their city of Jerusalem and they had established Jerusalem and built cities and built houses, etc. As a matter of fact, the Lord rebuked them because they built houses before they built the house of God. And uh, the 12 tribes, though, were people who almost 1.6 million, it could possibly have been more, those 40 years in the wilderness, that's how they lived. 1.6 million people, that was one heck of a campsite. And they moved as God directed them to move. And it wasn't new to them. They had saw that with their forefather Abraham and matriarch Sarah. When you read Genesis, you see that they lived in tents. When Isaac came along, I believe him and Rebecca lived in the tent and I believe Jacob lived in the tent. I know he did for some period of time but when he moved over to where Laban was, I'm not so sure if he was still living in a tent. But, but what the Lord is doing, even though now they're not dwelling in tents, he knows they understand the language. And the context of this 
is that there's going to be a time. Right now, the nation of Israel, in this text, they're not doing too good. They have rebelled against the Lord. He has sent various kinds of, um, I would say, discipline against them. He's taken several actions to bring them to a place where they would line up with him in faithfulness and line up with him in obedience. They've gotten to the point where they're not even producing any more people of faith, people that are looking to the Lord. They're now looking more into following after false idols and false gods and the living the life according to the people around them, according to the culture around them, which I could talk a message on that in and of, it, of itself. And because of that, he said to them that they were going to go into 70 years of exile. It hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. And, and it actually happened maybe 200 years after Isaiah prophesied this. Maybe not that long, but, but close. It was definitely over 100 years. But he's given them a word. He's letting them know, you're going to go into exile. That word that he had given was not going to change. But he did tell them that this is not the end of the story for you. There's some things that need to be learned, some things that need to be embraced. There's a relationship with God that they just need to get a grasp on and get a handle on. They need to know what it's really like to live for the Lord and develop a culture around people who live for God and not adapt to the culture around us, to know how to put the Lord first and to know how to pray and to know how to worship, know how to sing the songs of Zion, to know what it means to pull out the word of God and hear God speak something to you and you respond to it because you believe it's the word of God. He said, I'm gonna put you through a process. I'm gonna put you through a season. It's 70 years. He told them though, I'm bringing you out of that. And he begins, 54 is not the first one. Actually, 53 talks about the suffering Messiah. If you read Isaiah 53, it's all about Jesus and what Jesus is going to do when he comes. It talks about the suffering of Jesus and the things that Jesus is going to experience so that many of us that are here today will come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then 54 says, it's then when the Messiah comes. That you that's been barren, talking about the nation of Israel, that have not been producing, have not been faithful, have not been fruitful, have not grown. As a matter of fact, he says, you're being outnumbered by people who don't even worship me, who don't even serve me. You're being outnumbered. We got cities that have become desolate because they've been ransacked by the enemy. There was no fortress there. There was no people of God standing in the gap. There was no prayer intercessors. There was no priests and prophets there declaring what the Lord's will is that they would respond to. So he says, your cities have become desolate and you have become a barren people. But he says, when the Messiah comes, that is then that you're going to be able to sing and break out because you're going to realize that it's the Lord who has kept his promise and kept his word. In the process of that, there, there are some changes, there are some adjustments, there are some challenges. And unfortunately, not all of them, obviously, would be around when the Messiah come. But he wanted them to give them a hope that the people who God said he loves and he's chosen and that they will multiply the earth, he's letting them know, I'm going to keep my promise. He said, I made a, a covenant with Abraham. As a matter of fact, these verses won't be on the, on the, on the screen, but, but he talked to Abraham three times about this very thing. At the time, he didn't tell Abraham what they were going to experience. 
He just told Abraham time and time again that this people, the people that are mine, the people that call my name, will outnumber everyone on the planet. Genesis 12, 1 and 3, the Lord tells Abram, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's house, and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make you famous. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. All the families. As a matter of fact, if you have a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ today, it's because Abraham believed that promise and it was counted unto righteousness to him and it's counted unto righteousness to us. If you believe that God is God and he is the Lord of your life and he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins with your ungodly self and unlovable self, then you can stand here and proclaim, I am a child of God. Genesis 15, 1 through 6, the Lord came to Abram again and he showed him a vision. And I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but he tells Abram not be afraid. He says, I'm going to protect you. You're going to be a great reward. And there was reasons why Abraham was afraid. He was outnumbered. It was, he didn't have, he might have had three or 400 people in his camp. We get that idea from, from uh, chapter 14, 13 and 14. But, but he says, don't be afraid. I made you a promise. I'm going to protect you. You're going to be a great reward. And Abraham says back to him in chapter 15, he says, what good are all your blessings if I don't even have a son? In other words, if you're telling me I'm going to have a great nation, I don't even have a child. How am I going to have a great nation without a child? He said, you've given me no descendants. And the Lord said to him, you're going to have a son of your own. And the Lord took Abraham outside of the tent. He says, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. I'm going to preach on that next week. That's how many descendants you will have. Three chapters later in Genesis 18, the Lord comes again. He comes with a couple other fellows with him. Abraham recognized that they're angels of the Lord. He goes and prepares some food for them. They have a little conversation and, and the Lord let Abraham know. He says, where is Sarah, your wife? And he says, she's inside the tent. He says, I'm coming back to you next year and your wife, Sarah, will have a child. Sarah was in the tent, listened to the conversation and she was old. She's thinking, I'm old. This man is old. Ain't no function at the junction, if you know what I mean. She laughed silently to herself. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Why did Sarah laugh? Why did she say, can an old woman like, like me have a baby? And then he says this, is there anything too hard for the Lord? I'm going to return here next year and Sarah will have a son. That was the initial message they received. It was, that was in a micro manner of what the Lord was saying to the nation here in Isaiah 54. When the Messiah comes, millions of people will come to the Lord. And he's saying to them, your tent is too small. Now, I apologize if everybody can't see this tent, but, but, uh, but he said to them, your tent is too small. He says, you, you have planned to be who you are and remain as you are. But he says, your tent is too small. Now, now I can't see y'all. But y'all see the tent, right? It's a small tent. It's a good tent. It works for my son and his wife. They got two kids right now, but they'll get a bigger one later. All right. So in the name of Jesus, hallelujah, hallelujah. So, so, the, so he said the tent is too small. And so he tells them that if, if you got big vision and you got a big God and, and you know God keeps his promises, 
then the mindset that you got is too small. Now, in, in verse number four, which I didn't read, he addresses a couple of things that he knows might be a hindrance to them. He tells them on the one hand some things that might be paralyzing their progress or what may be limiting their vision. And he tells them, don't be afraid. And, and it's good that he said that because remember, this is a group of people that's failed over and over again. And so even when they hear the Lord say, I'm going to increase you, you need to enlarge, you need to expand, there's going to be more and more of you. They're thinking, man, we, we are so afraid of failing. We are so afraid of messing this up that he's saying to them, fear can keep you from this promise. And the other thing he tells them is, don't be ashamed. They knew they had messed up before. And they were still plagued by that. And, and many of us might be plagued by some of our past failings. You know what the Lord is saying. You know what the Lord wants to do. But all you can think about is I've, I've taken that nursing exam three times. I've taken that real estate exam four times. How can, I, how can I overcome this and believe that I'm going to get it? He says, don't be ashamed. And this is what I want to say to us. If we have that kind of mindset, we'll leave these stakes in the ground right where they are. If we have that mindset, we'll have people standing up on the walls week after week, just like we do now. If we have that kind of mindset where we don't believe the promises of the Lord, we will limit our growth, we'll limit our fruitfulness, we'll limit the amount of souls that can come in this house and give honor to the almighty God. Am I talking to the right church? CTC has been here for 25 years, plowing the ground. And believe me, even in my own life, there's been the fear of failing. And because I've been afraid that I would fail, I kept a stake in the ground that said, this is, this is where I'll go. This seems safe. I've tried to go farther than this. It hasn't worked out. I'm just going to plant my stake right here. After all, we're already bigger than the average church. After all, we've done more church planning than most. After all, we bring in more income than we need to do the work of God. Why do I need to go any further? I'm just going to plant my stake right here. What if I lose it all? What if people leave? What if they don't like me anymore? What if things change and adjust and they want to walk away? No, no, no. I'm going to plant my stake right here. At the same time, I've also been one of those ones that's had to walk through the ups and downs of the church. Many of the leaders have. Some personal, some for the church. And because of some of the shame and humiliation, I said, I'm planting my stake. I've had enough people lying on me and talking about me. I'm planting my stake. This is good enough. I've done what God called me to do. I can't deal with the shame anymore. I'm planting my stake. But I'm here to tell you, since, 19, since 2013, God has given some amazing prophetic words. He has spoken over us. He has given us instructions. He's spoken to my own life. Bless me with an amazing wife, wonderful children, a great pastoral staff, and a great team. And I know the Lord is saying we got to stretch out. I know the Lord is saying we got to enlarge and we got to can't hold back and we got to lengthen the cords and we got to strengthen the stakes. But to do that, I had to deal with some stakes that seemed to be stubborn. You know how you, you don't want your tent to blow away. So, so you, you, you plant them down kind of thick. And, and usually when you got to get ready to pull that thing out, you end up on your behind because you got to pull so hard. Those stakes get a little stubborn. And, and if you're anything like me and just ain't that strong, you just take a saw and cut the bad boy off, leave the stake and get another one. Just cut it off and get another one. But... 
But there's some stubborn stakes that I need to talk to you about that I think we all need to get past if we're going to enlarge, if we're going to stretch, and if we're going to plant new stakes. I'm just going to give you three of them, and and, uh, then I want to give you one final point. And one of them is that stake of clinging to the old. Now, let me tell you something. I know what it's like for church folks to not like changes and don't like things to be different. As a matter of fact, it's, it's not uncommon sometimes in a meeting to hear say, well, why do we got to change that? We've been doing that that way for years. It seems to be fine. I don't like all the new changes. Can I just suggest to you, you might be clinging on to a stubborn state. You might be clinging on to a stubborn state. You know, the Lord wanted to make sure the nation of Israel didn't have that mindset. And in Isaiah 43, 18 and 19, he says, do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? Shall you not perceive it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Can you say amen? We got to pull up that stubborn state. Paul had to do it. Philippians chapter three, listen, he talked about, he knew God was taking him to a different place, an apostolic ministry that he knew would probably cause him to end his life. But listen to what he said. I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I've not achieved it, but listen to this. But I focus on this one thing, Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. Can you say us? So we got to pull out that stubborn stake of clinging to the old and stretch that bad boy to that new territory. The second thing is this. It's simple also. We got to move. We got to pull up that stake of wanting to move at our pace. You've already heard this. Listen, we we had to move this thing up more than once on when we were going to start the second service. Now, I'm going to be absolutely honest with you. The last meeting that I approved moving it up, everything about me was saying, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. Because my pace wasn't quite there yet. My pace wasn't quite there yet. But here is what I know. For the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and certainly for CTC, I thank God we got pastors who are not on my program, not on their program. We got leaders not on their program, not on my program. We got a church that's not on my program or their program. We got a church that's on the Lord's program. We're on the Lord's program. And there's a great passage where the Lord talks about this, about pulling up that old stake of moving at your own pace and just thinking I can get around to it when I get around to it. It'll be fine. God's not going nowhere. The promise is sure. Yes and amen. He'll certainly do it. Blah, 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 blah. I'll get around to it and I'll obey God and everything will be wonderful. No, we got to pull that stake up. Listen to Numbers 9, 15 through 23. On the day the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered it. This is the nation of Israel. We're talking 12 tribes. We're talking... Uh, 1.6 million people at least. And they set up their camps by tribes. And in the middle of that, they set the tabernacle where God was to be worshiped. That was the indicator of when they were supposed to move. 
They were not settled until the tabernacle was established. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered it. But from evening to morning, the cloud over the tabernacle looked like a pillar of fire. This was a regular pattern. At night, the cloud that covered the tabernacle had the appearance of fire. Whenever the cloud lifted from over the sacred tent, the people of Israel would break camp and follow it. And wherever the cloud settled, the people of Israel would set up camp. I think you're getting it. Pillar here, pillar of fire that's covering this thing at night. And then the cloud that's covering it by day. They got their eyes on the tabernacle. And when they see the pillar move, then they know break camp because the Lord is moving. And so they go until they see where that thing stops. And then they establish this tent again. Now watch, watch this because it gets gooder and gooder. Watch this. He said, if the cloud remained over the tabernacle... For a long time, sorry, in this way, they traveled and camped at the Lord's command wherever he told them to go, wherever he told them to go. Then they remained in their camp as long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle. If the cloud remained over the tabernacle for a long time, the Israelites stayed and performed their duty to the Lord. Sometimes the cloud would stay over the tabernacle for only a few days. The people would stay for only a few days. So the Lord commanded and I'm sure there had to be some grumbling. You're talking 1.6 million people. If, if the Lord decided to stay there for three, it probably took him three days to get set up. And then he decided, oh, psych, we're moving. They had to break that bad boy down and move. Then at the Lord's command, they would break camp and move on. Sometimes the clouds stayed only overnight and lifted the next morning. But day or night when the cloud lifted, the people broke camp and moved on. Whether the cloud stayed over the tabernacle for two days, a month, or a year, the people of Israel stayed in camp and did not move on. But as soon as it lifted, they broke camp and moved on. So they camped or traveled at the Lord's command, and they did whatever the Lord told them through Moses. They pulled up the stubborn stake. They pulled up the stake of moving at their own pace. They could have said, Moses, some of us got five, four, uh, three, six, eight children, and you want us to just move when the Lord tells us to move or when you think it's time to move? No, 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 we're, we're staking down here. Moses said, no, we got to pull up that stubborn stake if we're going to move when the Lord says move. The last time that I actually um, was supposed to go camping, I took, this was, Jermaine was in the eighth grade. He was in the, the teacher was Craig Koenix. He wanted to do an outdoor club and go to the Laguna Mountains. And uh, I was, there was a pastor friend in, in, well, he wasn't quite in San Diego. It might've been, I don't know, Chula Vista, El Cajon, somewhere in that area. Long story short, I told Koenix I would help him get kids up there. And I said, this was the day of, I says, now I don't know if I'm gonna stay at the camp. Uh, I may have to go meet this pastor. Let's see. Long story short, we get there. We set the camp up. I go on to meet the guy. A storm comes. And I thought, well, I'm not going to drive back during this storm. So I just found me a place to sleep, and I slept. I think I slept in my vehicle on the way back. And then I got up, and I thought, well, they're camping. They're going to be there for most of the day. I'll just take my time. So I got up, done my devotion, went and found me a little place to eat breakfast, And then I went to where the camp was. I got to the camp and they weren't at that spot. So I thought they must have moved. So I went on down a little further, looked at another camp. They weren't at that spot. I went down as far as I could, exhausting every campsite. They were nowhere to be found. 
So I went to a phone booth. I called. Uh, I couldn't. I didn't have a cell phone at that time. I went and called, called uh, Canaan's wife, and I said, hey, I'm back here at the camp, and I can't find anybody. She said, Tyrone, they left you. <laughs> they left you. When he got ready to go, you were lagging. He didn't know where you were. Of course, we didn't have cell phones. He didn't know how to communicate with you. They left. They left you. I'm going to tell you something. We moving. We moving. We moving. I don't want to leave you. I don't want to leave you. And listen to what the Lord reminded the children of Israel. Remember what the Amalekites did to you on the trip from Egypt? They attacked you when you were tired and exhausted and killed all those who were lagging behind. You got to pull up that stake of moving at our own pace and move according to the will of God. And here's the last thing I want to give you. That stake of not wanting to make new connections and new relationships. And I know for a lot of people, I get that. It's kind of hard to, uh, when you get into a church that's bigger and, you know, you start to see a whole bunch of people you don't know and you're not connecting with them and you feel like you, you don't know people in the church. Now, we know how to resolve that. You do that with serving. You're going to see that community and you do that in our life groups, our city life groups, and you're going to have a community. I get, I get that. But I learned something from the disciples. You know, the disciples was very comfortable with Jesus and Jewish people. Oftentimes, remember, they were pushing children away, pushing women away, uh, not wanting Jesus to even talk to the Samaritan woman. They were comfortable with Jesus and the Jewish people. That was the same food and same clothes and same music and same way to raise children, same culture. They not only wanted to remain among their own, they were comfortable with it. They also wanted their faith only to be shared with their own. But Jesus came and set that on edge. Jesus came and set that on edge. And he said this in Mark eleven seventeen, And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, for all nations. And then in John 10, 16, just to make sure the Jewish disciples got it, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also that they will listen to my voice so that there will be one flock and one shepherd. That was the heart of Jesus. Peter got it when he got called to the household of Cornelius. He even said to Cornelius when he got in there, he says, you know how unlawful it is for me, a Jew, to associate or visit with anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I shall not call any person unclean. We got to go beyond that, beyond our normal connections and our normal relations. Paul got it in Acts 28. He said, therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. And thank God they did because that's why we're here. And church, we got to get it. Fellas, y'all can bring that tent up here. We got to get it because this is what the scripture says. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. We got to get it. We got to get it, that it's not just us four and no more. And here's always the question I ask. This is what I ask when people say, well, the church is getting too big. Well, well, what fits you? What's the number that you think is enough? And who's going to be the one to stand at the door and tell the people, you know what, that's enough, y'all. No, no more can come. We just don't like more people. What's the right size for you? 
I'm here to tell you, this is where we got to go from. We got to go from this to this. From this to this. That's good enough, Eli. This to this. That's where we got to go. This thing will hold about three families. Well, my family, we gonna, we'll need more, but, but close enough. But from this to this. Because here is the thing I want to ask you. You might not want to go beyond who we are and who you know and, you know, two services. I won't know everybody. I get that. But what if we were making room for your mother? What if we making room for your sister and your father and your cousin and that addicted uncle and the co-worker we've been praying for? What if we making room for them? What if we making room for your neighbor? What if we making room for your boss who you can't stand and he can't stand you, but Jesus is working? What if we making room for them? Would you say that's enough? Would you say we don't need to build no more? Would you say we don't need to grow no more? What if it was your family? What if it was somebody you love? What if it was somebody God is working to use you to say, would you say that's enough? We got to make room for more. We got to make room for more. Now you can sit down for a minute. I'm going to close with one more thing. And then we're just going to worship. There's a verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 13. Let me tell you what this verse says and I'll give you some meaning. It says, but we will not boast beyond limits. Listen, we will not boast beyond limits, but we'll boast only with the regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even you. Listen to what Paul is saying. This word, area of influence, is the word of metron. And it simply means this. Paul is telling the church in Corinth and he's telling the ministers there, you don't have to worry about comparing yourself to anybody. You don't have to worry about wondering what other folks is doing. You don't have to try to figure out how you can be like other folks and and do the things other people do. You just focus on the air of influence I've given you. You focus on the air of influence I've given you. Paul says, we're not gonna go beyond where we don't have influence, but we're gonna go where we have. God has given us an area influence. Lynn Ann German is in my, in my city life group, my small group. A couple of weeks ago, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, she was saying it was a good thing. I didn't take it. It was actually a good thing. She says, you know, I love the church, love the preaching, love the teaching, love coming to small group, but I don't serve in any particular area. And the reason is my area that God has given me is my classroom. Every student that comes in there, I pray over. Every parent I have contact with, I pray over. Every employee I can, every staff person, I tell them about the Lord. In meetings and in seasons when I can share something good, that's the area of influence I got. And I'm telling you, I appreciate that. Let me tell you something, church. I have turned down more opportunities to go some other place to pastor than you can count. There's been opportunity upon opportunity, and some of them were very attractive, especially when I was single. But I know my area of influence. I know the church where God has called me. I know the city that I'm supposed to be in. 
I'm not looking to lead you to do any more than what God has given us to do. I'm just simply asking you, pull up those stubborn stakes, get the right mind and the right heart. Let's move forward. We're taking that land next door. We're going to expand. We're going to increase. And we're going to do the will of God. Because we're making room for more.